Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web, where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. My guest this week is Jeremy Gilbert. He's Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London. He writes regularly for the British press, including The Guardian, The New Statesman, Open Democracy, Red Pepper and Navarra Media, which is one of the new progressive outlets. He writes for think tanks such as the Institute for Public Policy Research and Compass. He was a founder member of Momentum. He's a member of the Labour Party and has been in discussion in the Jeremy Corbyn years on policy and strategy and appeared on national television as a speaker for Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. He is one of the single most interesting political analysts of British politics that I have ever heard, and I have long wanted to talk to him. For those of you outside the UK, this is quite British-focused, this particular podcast, but I think the implications of this resonate around the world, and I hope that you are able to find applications for what we talk about in your own nations. So people of the podcast... Please do welcome Professor Jeremy Gilbert. So, Jeremy Gilbert, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your Wednesday morning. How is life down there in, I'm guessing, East London somewhere? Yeah, I live in northeast London in Walthamstow. Uh, well, we're getting used to, we're sort of getting back to normal. The kids are at school. That was the, the dominant the dominant fact they, of the past right. year has been the kids not being at school. So Yeah. I, I saw on your website, um, one of your blogs, that you had to take time out to teach maths to your kids and stop them going insane. How are their maths? Are they now at professorial maths level? Uh, I wouldn't say so, but it's pretty solid. Yay. Well done. Math literate kids. Brilliant. Okay, so forever on Accidental Gods, we start with how did you come to be the person who's written the books that you've written, who's been a member of, a founder member of Momentum and Compass, and is currently still teaching at the University of East London. Tell us the highlights of what motivates you and gets you to the point of here. Uh, well, I grew up in a very sort of political family. I mean, my parents are sort of uh, unsuccessful members of the public sector professional classes. You know, my mum's American, my dad uh, my dad uh, is from London, but I ended up growing up mostly in the Northwest. So I was in the Northwest of England. I was in the industrial Northwest uh, in the early 80s. So I had a sort of front front row seat for Thatcherism and its destruction of working class culture up there. Uh, and so I was very sort of politicized by the time I was kind of going to university. And I, you know, I went and studied. I actually went to the University of East London as a student to study when it was one of the only cultural studies programs i was pretty precocious and i sort of wanted to do this i wanted to engage in what was then this sort of cutting edge kind of radical project in the universities which was cultural studies uh, and i sort of stayed there i mean i'd moved around a lot as a kid so i just i didn't i very deliberately wanted to chose to move somewhere for university where i thought i would probably be able to stay for the foreseeable future without getting bored and, and east london indeed turned out to be an exciting place to be for the next few decades. I mean, over that time, I've been quite involved in, I've always been quite involved in different aspects of music culture. So like, I run a sound system, I still sort of DJ and host dance parties. And I guess I've always been thinking about the sort of relationships between, you know, the uh, theory, practice, you know, politics, music, other, other elements of culture. And that's what sort of mm. has always sort of preoccupied me. And... Uh, that I guess that's pretty much the story. Okay. And you have, of course, and we'll link in the show notes, a thread on Navarra Media where you really do link music and dance culture and politics. Um, and I'm a music phobe, so I'm afraid that's not one of the areas that I go <laughs> into, but I'm sure other listeners will do. So heading for the places where I can engage my head, you were a founder member of Momentum and you were deeply involved, I think, in the Corbyn Project with Labour. So for those who aren't political geeks, and particularly for those not in the UK, 
if we were to create a sketch of what the Labour Party was at the point when Corbyn came, took over, and what he tried to make it into, and then I'd like to lead into a little tiny bit of what Stormer's done since, so that we can set the scene for where we are now in terms of the hopes of whatever we call a progressive left. Yeah, sure, sure. So the Labour Party has always been a very complex institution. I mean, one of the the big problems people have in engaging with it really is that it is very complex and very messy. Hmm. You know, we have listeners outside the UK probably not be familiar with the details of the British constitution and electoral system, but it's really stupid. It's highly dysfunctional. It it sort of combines the worst. It has some of the worst features of the American sort of constitution and none of its good features and worse than any of the European system. So we have a system where we elect governments on the first on first past the post, which means seats in the legislature are not allocated on the basis of, of national vote share. They're just allocated on the basis of who gets a plurality in each individual constituency. And then we give complete centralised executive power to the majority leader in the legislature. So in effect, you need to get about just over 40% of the vote if your vote is distributed efficiently, as it is for the Conservative parties, and then you get complete unchecked control over the legislative agenda and foreign and domestic policy with with no real limits on your power for the next few years. And that's how the British constitution works. And so political parties in this country, a bit like the states, like very different from other European countries, are not kind of well-defined ideological organizations that these kind of big mass organizations which contain within them a number of different tendencies and that's true certainly of, that's well that's true of all of them really to be honest and the labor party in particular has always been this very complicated organism because it was from the very beginning you know it was set up to to, to do a whole a number of different things none of which are re- or even necessarily compatible really yeah, it was set up to represent working class people, but it was it was set up to give the trade union movement a political voice. But it was also set up, you know, as the sort of ideological socialist party of the country. And those are not necessarily the same thing. Hmm. They're not necessarily the same job. It's been highly contentious within ever since the Labour Party was founded. The question of well, what is it? Is it a mass membership organisation? Mm. Is it really just? Is it basically just a sort of, you know, almost like a sort of fund, you know, just a funding body through which unions channel money directly to MPs, and everything else is just exists to support the MPs? Is it? Um, is it just the political voice of the trade union movement? Like, what is it? I mean, and that none of that has ever really been resolved. And essentially, different factions, different sections of the party, and different political tendencies within it have pushed and pulled to try and define it one way or another over the course of its existence. And in the 90s, the sort of the, the new Labour project was really predicated on one particular vision of what the party was going to be now, or what new Labour would be. And that was that it was very much a kind of, it was a sort of a mass membership organisation, which would also take money from trade unions, but it existed solely to service the Parliamentary Labour Party and the leadership. And effectively, members would be sort of like members of an NGO, like you know, like like non-active members of something like Greenpeace. You would sign up, you would be a supporter, you would, you might be occasionally consulted about some vague aspect of policy and general direction, but you didn't expect to be sort of particip- to really participate. As the two thousands went on, I think it became clear, even to you know, big supporters of the new Labour project, people like David Miliband, that that was a, a vision of politics that had severe limitations. And particularly in the age of the internet, when people expect to be more involved and more, you know, people expect culture generally to be more sort of participatory, it was becoming quite difficult to mm. sustain. And so there were various attempts to sort of open it up and, and modernise again. And Ed Miliband, crucially, um, as leader between 2010 and 2015, had introduced a dramatic change to the way in which the Labour Party leader would be elected. The Labour Party leader up until the 1970s was only chosen by the MPs. Hmm. And then there was a big, you know, there was a big fight between the left and the right over this. And the eventual compromise was the introduction of the Electoral College, which gave the MPs one third of the votes, the trade unionists one third of the votes, and the constituency parties, which basically means the ordinary members, one third of the votes. And by 2010, this was generally felt to be quite antiquated. And in fact, 
it was it was really the right of the party and the Blairites who really wanted to move on from that because they thought mm. it still left too much power in the hands of the unions, right. and they assumed that if they empowered the mass mem- the members to cho- choose the next leader, then they would be, then they would dutifully elect a right winger as they had been doing since the early nineties. So they all supported this quite radical change of Ed Miliband, even though it didn't get a lot of public attention. And then what nobody really, I don't think anybody really fully registered until after the 2015 election when Labour lost quite badly and Ed Miliband resigned. And there was the first leadership election was to be held under these new rules. And people didn't really realise, you know, what, what the implications of this were, because essentially everything had been set up to create a set of opportunities for people to you know, join the party to sort of flood into the party, really, in support of a progressive candidate. Mm. So really without anybody particularly planning it, so it went from being something which, an organisation which was still basically run on the Blairite model, in which the membership was basically passive. And it existed, it, it, functionally it existed just to serve the interests of the Parliamentary Labour Party. It, it, it sort of overnight almost turned into a mass political party in which the membership had a real sort of um, influence over the leadership and, you know, in our highly centralised political system, power within the parties tends to mirror power in the rest of the country. So if you control the leadership of the party, you basically control everything about it. Or you at least get to control the general direction of travel. Hmm. The one concession to the Parliamentary Labour Party that Miliband had made when introducing these reforms was that he had still left the power to nominate the um, potential candidates in the hands of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And Corbyn only got enough nominations to be on the ballot because a a number of right-wing MPs were persuaded that it would be a good idea to do so. Because what had happened over the previous couple of leadership elections, especially the 2010 one, was it had become accepted practice that you should have somebody from the far left of the party on the ballot so that they could be ritually humiliated. Hmm. So that the complete complete marginality of the left to Labour politics, mainstream politics, could be ritually demonstrated. And that was why they got the nomination. So absolutely nobody, really, and not even any of Corbyn's kind of closest friends and supporters, was really expecting... The, what to happen you know what happened and what happened is really through really through the kind of viral facilitation of facebook groups mainly um hundreds of thousands of people sort of quite quickly became aware that there was an opportunity to actually get jeremy corbyn elected leader of the labor party if they joined the party uh, and they did so they did that so by by the time he's elected at uh, the end of summer 2015 the party's really quite a different sort of organisation in terms of its composition at the level of the membership and the leadership. Of course, it's not a different organisation at the level of its bureaucracy and its mm. its paid staff around the country and centrally, who are all of them absolutely committed, you know, right, you know, members of the right wing of the party, you know, people who really their formative generational experience was defeating you know, the left in the eighties and nineties, and they proceeded to respond as you might expect with this there was a sort of collective sort of epistemological panic if you like. and then the labor party became this very contentious organization within which there's a very very there was a very marked distinction between what the mass membership wanted what the bureaucracy wanted what the what the parliamentary party wanted etc and since then i mean that it's that set of kind of conflicts and in contradictions i think has really defined the politics of, of the party thank you there are so many questions so a couple that arise, I, I was one of those. I joined as a £3 member in the summer of 2015 uh, because I grew up in Scotland and Scottish Labour was an extremely toxic and very unpleasant uh, experience. So I hadn't been part of the party. I joined as a member. I voted for Corbyn. The moment he was elected, I got onto the then crashing website um, to sign up as a member of the party and I stayed in until the day he left. And you're right, big Facebook groups and and the interesting toxicity within them. It seemed to me way back in 2016 when there was the second Corbyn election, and I was one of those who was told on the Facebook group that I would not get a chance to vote, and the day before the vote was told that I'd been removed from the party for having written something. So it seemed to me at that point that the party machinery, which was still held by the right, brought a legal challenge, or there was a legal challenge, to hundreds of thousands of people being purged from the party. And that the legal ruling, as far as I understood it as a non-legal person, was basically, you are a private members club and you get to define what your rules are. And the law has no real say on that. 
go away yeah. and stop bothering us. And so that seems basically to be what they're running on now, which is we're a private members club and we decide who makes the rules and what the rules are. And if we decide to change the rules from what they were yesterday, who is going to be able to do anything about it? Am I misreading that? No, they're running on. I mean, this is they're running on the principle that, with the, according to the Labour Party constitution, the National Executive Committee is a completely sovereign body. That there are just no limits or, and no accountability. That the only accountability is election is the election of uh, members of the National Executive Committee. And if they can gerrymander the the membership of the NEC, which they seem to have done, then they basically get a free pass. Yeah. In effect, yeah. Is this so? I don't know anything about the the internal workings of the other political parties. Um, barring, have you ever read Donaghy McCarthy's book, The Prostitute State? I know. It's a fascinating book. So he was chair of the Lib Dems for seven years, and and it his book opens with him at their going to the NECs and Paddy Ashdown saying, "If Mr. McCarthy's motion." passes, I will resign. And Mr. McCarthy's motion was that Lord something hyphen something should not be Paddy Ashdown's senior political advisor while being on the board of Rio Tinto Zinc. And the motion failed and Paddy Ashdown didn't resign. And the rest of the, the first third of the book is Donaghy McCarthy's attempt to assert an activist base within the Lib Dems against a wholly establishment uh, hierarchy and and it sounded pretty much like the dysfunction of the Labour Party, but in terms of their rules and their laws, somebody once said the problem with socialism is it takes up too many evenings, and I spent too many evenings of my life sitting in Labour Party meetings where somebody at some point would stand up and go point of order, Madam Chairman, and we would be lost in process and procedure and the rules for another half hour, which guaranteed that nobody with a functioning brain would bother to go back and the people on the right could continue to push through what they wanted to push through. Does this happen in, in the Tory party and other parties or are they just okay and, and carry on as they are? Well, as far as I know, the Tories don't really care about internal democracy. I mean, they, they do get to choose their leader out of the, the, the two that have been shortlisted by the parliamentary party. So the right. parliamentary party shortlists the two candidates and then the membership elect one. Right. So they're basically guided towards the one that the parliamentary party wants because they're only given two, one of whom is unacceptable. Yeah. And the Lib Dems, as far as, to the best of my knowledge, it is yeah, very much like that because they love voting on things. But voting, at least within the terms of um, Liberal Democrat institutions, does actually matter. So the membership do actually have power. You know, it, you get to vote for things and then they do end up determining party policy, for example. I mean, the frustrating thing about the Labour Party is indeed there's this, there's this culture of proceduralism, but also it doesn't mean anything really because there's no compulsion on the leadership to accept anything that the membership um, decide on at any level. And this has been, you know, the case sort of forever. So that's the thing I think that makes the Labour Party really, um, does make it really sort of frustrating. Uh, and it's also the fact that, you know, it's, you know, there, there are still lots, of, I mean, the Labour Party is a big organisation and as small as the membership got at one time, it still had sort of tens of thousands of members. And there are, you know, there are enough people in lots of Labour Party branches who just really enjoy that kind of, tedious procedures mm. you know that's just what they like to do and it's what they know how to do and it's they sure do. what they keep doing i i would always say to people you know you've, you've got to make a judgment based on your own local circumstances whether it's worth doing things like going to branch meetings and in, and in a lot of cases it won't be i would say that's not really where the power of the membership lie anyway for the most part the, the power of the membership essentially lies in, in still being able to vote for the nec and the, and the leadership mm. Uh, and there is every chance, I think, given the kind of antics of the right and their unpopularity now, if people don't keep leaving the party and people on the left, you know, are willing to just stay in long enough to vote in the next NEC elections, we could get a more left-wing NEC. That's where the real power lies for the membership. You know, it's a great thing to participate in your local branch if it, if it is a vehicle for a kind of effective progressive politics. But I think... You know, you have to make a judgment, can it be or not? And if it can't be, which I would say, I would say at least half of Labour Party branches just are, are dysfunctional in that way and are not going to become effective vehicles for local progressive politics or national progressive politics. And in that case, we'll just withdraw and do something else with your time. Alrighty. So moving on, if we're not giving our time to local parties, which I completely get is worthless, what is our route as members of the public to creating a progressive future. 
So I think in, in order to look at that, we need to kind of look at what Johnson has managed to do with democracy in the last couple of years, which is really radically to change the public's trust in it, I would say. My understanding from my one Tory friend who's quite high in the party hierarchy is that they are fully intending to gerrymander and he is convinced that they're going to have a 100-seat parliamentary majority at the next election. Unless, I think, we can manage to create a progressive coalition because, as you said, 40% of the vote is all that's required to get at the moment an 80-seat majority. How do we get to a point where we're not living under permanent Tory rule? Well, I think indeed, I think, you know, I've always, I've been an advocate for sort of decades now of what is sort of referred to as a progressive alliance. Whenever people hear that term, they want to have an argument about what defines progressive and people on the Labour left in particular want to get very agitated about the fact they don't regard the Lib Dems as progressive, to which my response is always that the A, you know, the term is not for your benefit. The term's got to be one that people in the Lib Dems who might support a Labour government would find appealing so it's not about you know you're not the audience for it really and secondly you know a, an alliance should be whether an alliance is progressive or not should be defined by what it proposes to do not by what some of its constituent members might have done 10 years ago yeah. the, the tory party has completely dominated british politics for the past 80 years um they're the they get the first part of both system delivers for them far more mps like per vote i mean or they need far less M votes to get an mp than anybody else the only time that hasn't been true in recent decades, uh, during the new Labour years, it, it, that it, it, new Labour managed to get a vote, managed to get big parliamentary majorities on the basis of very low electoral turnouts, mm -hmm. and by winning over kind of Tory votes, you know, by pursuing effectively Tory programmes. So even if even if you're not just talking about the Conservative Party, it's very clear that the way the system is set up now, it, it gives you know absolutely undue levels of representation to kind of affluent voters, you know, especially in the South. And the only logical response when you find yourself in a situation where you know one one entity is completely dominating or uh, every or it's uh, the others is to sort of band together and to try to kind of work against them and. I mean, people talk. People respond to this suggestion as if it's kind of practically impossible, as if it's kind of really unimaginable. It's just sort of nonsense. I mean, first, it's normal politics in most countries in the world that have parliamentary democracies for parties to do deals with each other, form alliances, go in and out of alliances, form coalitions. Secondly, the Labour Party only came into existence as a parliamentary force on the basis of a deal with the Liberals in 1906. The 1906 election, the Liberal Party and the, and the then emergent Labour Party, they only had like one or two MPs at that point, did a deal where they would stand, they would not stand against each other in key constituencies where it was clear that only one of them had a chance of winning. And that is how, that is the way in which um, you got a, a block of Labour MPs in Parliament for the first time. Mm. So there's no reason why Labour and Liberal Democrats and other parties, but realistically, it's only really the, the relationship between the Labour and the Liberal Democrats would matter, uh, could, you know, stand aside for each other in constituencies where one of them is clearly the only real challenger to a Tory incumbent. And we saw that happen. It, it happened in the last by-election. Yeah, in, well, in effect it happened, yeah. And um, I d it wasn't kind of an official policy but of, of the party leadership. It's very frustrating because this is something that people have been talking about since the late 80s. In some ways, the really interesting question is like, well, why won't they? Yes. And what are the kind of psychological and kind of social and political obstacles that have to be overcome to sort of making this happen. Now, there's a whole set of issues around, you know, liberal Democrats and their voters being afraid of a Labour government, afraid of the left, afraid of sort of socialism. I think that's one set of issues you would have to address. I think, but I think you would probably... Not a problem under the current leadership though, is it? No, I no. And I think you would have to talk to, you would have to talk to progressive colleagues in the Liberal Democrats, of whom there are many, in, in my view, about the best way to address that. I mean, that would, I wouldn't really be the person to talk about that. I can talk more effectively about the problems in the Labour Party with getting people to accept this kind of idea. I would say, firstly, the Labour Party membership is, uh, not surprisingly, is highly concentrated in Labour voting areas, especially the urban areas. And in those places, the, why do you join the Liberal Democrats? Well, usually you join the Liberal Democrats because you're basically a Tory, but the Tories have got no chance in that place. Yeah. So the Liberal Democrats that those the Labour members meet are usually pretty right-wing, like pretty anti-Labour. And most of those Labour members, in my experience, are completely ignorant of the fact that there are huge chunks of, the, of England uh, and indeed, you know, even some parts of Scotland where 
uh, the basically never industrialized and the Labour Party has never been a political presence and the Liberals, the Liberal Democrats and the Liberal Party before them have been the, the anti-Tory party, the party of reform, going back to the 19th century and they still are and in those places you know the reverse is true as of what I described in sort of urban areas, in those places often a lot of people who are in the Liberal Democrats would probably be in the Labour Party if they were living in urban areas but there's no point being uh, an active Labour Party member they, they feel in places where the Labour vote is like you know 10 15%. So uh, the the fact and so in my experience a lot of labor members are just completely ignorant of the fact that this there exists this whole swathe of people who are in or who are out there in the liberal democrat parties in in kind of mostly rural rural and semi rural or very suburban parts of England who are who do have basically progressive politics but you know see the liberal democrats as the only effective vehicle for it where they are. Um, and those are the people with whom I think, you know, progressives in the Labour Party really need to be making sort of common cause in, in some way. Because I think clearly there are people in the Liberal Democrats who I would say are quite right wing. They are sort of committed neoliberals, but to say there are in the Labour Party. And I think yeah. that, that comment you referred to, uh, you know, I made on the Politics Theory other podcast uh, a few months ago about how the the fault line between progressives and their enemies really runs through the Labour Party. I mean, properly speaking, it runs through several different parties it runs inside parties i think in this country runs through the smp definitely it runs yep. through the green party in some places i mean there are some there are some mad right-wing people in the green party it, and it definitely runs Boris Johnson's father. yeah <laughs> and it runs through the liberal democrats and you know it's a sort of dysfunction of our parliamentary system that, that that's how it works but that is how it works and i think and the real problem is people sort of having this very sort of two-dimensional conception of politics where they think that politics they think that political parties are organized along a continuum, you know, from right, right to left in a kind of neat way. So for example, all liberal democrats are more right-wing than, than the most right-wing Labour Party people. And that's just a complete misconception. I mean, I would mm, honestly say, yeah. I mean, I would say that the right wing of the Labour Party just matches up with the kind of political continuum of opinion of the Liberal Democrats, actually. I think there's some people in the Labour Party who are more right wing, certainly than the last Tory party. Yeah, that's probably... You know, people like Heidi Allen were way to the left of people like West Streeting. That's probably true. That's probably true. Although Heidi Allen was really a Lib Dem. I mean, she didn't know. She ended up, oh, she ended exactly. up a Tory by accident. But... But yeah, I think that's definitely true. So I think that is. So I think getting away from that sort of um, you know tribalism and that sort of uh, that sort yeah. of very narrow conception of of what political parties are is really important. But for me, I think one of the things that's crucial though is is for people not to have a sort of emotional relationship uh, to political parties, like whether it's the ones they like or the ones that they hate. Is to really, I think it's emotion is crucial in politics. But the Labour Party, for example, is just not an appropriate vehicle for your emotion for emo to have sort of emotional attachments to. But everyone I know is you know, this is the point. They're in it because it hits their amygdalas. Every conversation I ever had within the local CM CLP felt to me like an amygdala level conversation. I recognise that, and I think for me that's sort of the problem that you sort of have to. I mean, I think you know it, you, we all need our organisations that we're sort of emotionally invested in, but I think. You have to just see an organisation like the Labour Party or even the Liberal Democrats as as a territory within which whatever tendency or tradition you're invested in will struggle with others, will will fight with others, rather than being the thing, the object of invest, emotional investment itself. If you see what I mean, I do. But the interesting thing is that Johnson and his ilk, Trump, Bannon, that whole kind of right wing soup, have managed to create an amygdala tapping narrative on the right that hits straight into people's limbic system. Well, they have, yeah. We haven't on the left, and, and yet the people involved on the left are deeply involved at a tribal level. If we if we're to make this happen, it seems to me we need two things. We need the media to be on board with it. The one brilliant thing that Blair did, and I'm not a fan of Blair's on any level, is that he got Murdoch on board. And it seems to me that what Starmer is trying to do, one of the two things Starmer is trying to do is to get Murdoch back on board because otherwise no hope if, if we even believe that Starmer ever wants to be elected. But if we were to get even a segment of the current media soup on board and the leadership of, one assumes, the Labour Party, the Lib Dems and Plaid in Wales and the SNP in Scotland, 
then we would have a chance of this progressive alliance occurring. Can you see a route to it happening that doesn't take in those two factors? Well, not really. I mean, I think it depends how big a section of the media you think we need. I mean, I, th- I think we also need to build a kind of public culture of, of opposition and direct mm. critique of the media. You know, we need, and this is one of my arguments with sort of Labour colleagues, you know, arguments for the Progressive Alliance. Again, it's something that Labour people just don't seem to consider at all. That I mean, they, they think the media is anti-Labour. And my position mm. is the media isn't anti-Labour, it's just anti-Labour, it's pro-Tory. Because they're yes, not, they, the Lib Dems don't get any oxygen from the media either. Yeah. You know, neither do the Greens. You know, the, the Greens don't get anything like the coverage they should, given the, the levels of support they have in places. So all of these institutions have a sort of an interest in critiquing the media. And I don't think, we don't know what would happen if you had a situation in which, say, both the leader of the Labour Party and both the leader of the Lib Dems had a very clearly defined, worked-out line saying to people, you should not trust the, the, the press, it's run by billionaires in their own interest, and just say that over and over again, like in every interview. We don't know. Maybe it wouldn't work, but we haven't tried yet. We haven't tried doing that. Because they're all trying to get the billionaires on board. They're trying to pr- prove to them that they're nice, fluffy, safe, harmless, little marshmallowy people that the billionaires can allow to be back in power. You're right. And I think this is all, this would all, this also would bring us to what another dimension, I think, of an effective p- progressive alliance would have to be. And I think one of the weaknesses of the sort of progressive alliance movement as it's been prosecuted by organisations like Compass in this country is it tends to think of itself as a sort of anti-antagonistic movement, as a movement which is about taking the polarities out of politics, etc. Uh, my view is this is really a misconception, that it really it has to be about realigning the polarities in politics, but not pretending that they can be got rid of. And in effect, what, we, what it should be promoting is a sort of insurgency against that servile neoliberal political class, which would take place across uh, these different institutions. And the, the the task would be to kind of build a sort of a, an alliance of progressives across those different organisations, but you and I think you can't do that without being being willing to identify you know, the billionaires as part of the problem, you know, as the, the enemy, if you like. Which of course is something it's always really worth remembering. And this is something I've written about, and I sort of go on about quite a lot. You know, for example, you know, Corbyn, you know, Jeremy Corbyn never did that. And I think people sort mm-hmm. of people just yeah. sort of assumed that he did because they most people who supported him would would take that for granted. But he never gave a speech saying, look, the problem is rich people having all the money. That's the problem. He didn't do that. His speeches would always be about the kind of moral depredation that had been wreaked upon the country by austerity. But that's not the same thing as saying, the why did they... It's saying that these people did a bad thing. It's not the same thing as saying, okay. these people did a bad thing because they wanted to do it because they're greedy, because it served their interests. Yes. And and he never said, of course they hate me because I want to tax them. I've heard you say that before, and of course he should have said that. But did he assume that we all knew that, or did he just not think it? I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask him. I mean, I just don't think, I just think Jeremy, I mean, this is part of the issue, really, is that one reason he was so popular with the people who loved him, and, and so unpopular with the people who didn't, is because he's basically a kind of moral agent. He's not someone who thinks about politics. Alrighty, so, let's do a thought experiment of what, how, if we were given a blank slate and were able to move the pieces on the chessboard to create the conditions where a progressive alliance might arise, what would we do and what would arise? So I'm going to start first, which was I would have Lloyd Russell Moyles as leader of the Labour Party, because partly because he has explicitly said he doesn't want to do it. And I'm in my kind of Douglas Adams, the person who doesn't want to do it, is the best person to be able to do it. And Zayford B. Wilbrox can go off and talk to the media. So that would be my starting point, because I think he's highly intelligent and he gets it. And he's the only person in the Labour Party that I've come across who fulfills both of those. Because we need, I think, where we are at the moment, we're on the edge of climate annihilation. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. We're facing the breakdown of the neoliberal project. Those three alone mean we need the brightest and the best. And what seems to happen with our electoral system is that we get the most venal and the stupidest, and that needs to stop happening. How do we create our non-violent, politically acceptable revolution? Your turn. Well, um, yeah, I think I think there's no question that capturing the leadership of the Labour Party would have to be part of it. There's loads of other things that, that would have to happen, but that would be part of it. Uh, you know, Lloyd would be great. Clive Lewis would be great. There's younger people like Nadia Whittam, I think, would be great uh, eventually. 
I think in order to do what you're talking about, you have to have a you would have to have a Labour leadership which was willing to. This is something I've said a number of times over since Ed Miliband was leader. They would have to be willing to give the speech which Corbyn was never willing to give, which Ed was definitely never willing to give, which so far none of them have ever been willing to give. Which is to say, look, representative liberal democracy has been broken since the mid seventies. It's not just the Tories. It's not just Murdoch. But, you know, it arguably worked for a few decades. I mean, it delivered like, significant reforms after the war, basically. You know, but it's been broken since the seventies. Since the seventies, we've been governments have been pursuing a political agenda, which all opinion polls showed wasn't what people actually wanted or, or thought they were voting for. And we've really got to th- rethink this whole thing <laughs> on some level. We've got to rethink the, the concept of you know liberal representative democracy in the twenty first century. It doesn't. You need something. It's quite clear. You need something much more participatory, much more involved, and much more you know willing to challenge you know concentrations of power in the media, in in the economy, etc. So hang on a second before you go further. What does that if they're saying we need a new liberal agreement? let's say, or a new democratic agreement, what does it look like? Before we worry about who does it, what does that new democratic agreement, how does it function? I don't know. I think you would need you would need something like what you know people talk about as a constitutional convention, but I, I think about it more as, a, as what is called in Latin America, a constituent process. You know, it would have to be a kind of mass, you know, national deliberative process that would take several years that would really try to... D- try to put in place institutions of you know deliberation representation and governance that actually seem appropriate to the 21st century but i I couldn't say in advance what what it would look like i think it probably would have a lot more elements of uh, participatory democracy uh, sort of local levels and you know regional levels i think it would have a lot more probably have more direct democracy as well i'm not as you know i'm not as sort of against the whole idea as a lot of people are sort of post-brexit and i think that's only one part of what would be needed i think um i think to get to a position where you know you could imagine a sort of political leadership in this country saying something like that i think various kinds of things would have to happen i think probably pressure does have is going to have to be brought to bear on the sort of political class you know in the labor party and other institutions from sort of inside and, and outside i think probably you are going to have to have you know, sort of, you know, both sort of escalating forms of civil disobedience and also sort of electoral pressure where it can be brought to bear um, on sort of elect- elected representatives. So, in uh, as a loyal Labour Party member, of course, I would only ever advocate voting Labour in any given election. But in theory, in principle, I can see why strategically progressives might think it advantageous to vote for you know, Green Party candidates or other candidates in situations where that might be seen as leveraging influence. Uh, to push the party and you know, all the parties in the direction they, they want to go. I think, obviously, this is something that lo- lots of people have commented on the past couple of years. Or, or obviously, you ca- I don't think you can build a, a movement for renewal for and for democratic change without the unions being on board and without um, without kind of trade unionism, you know, without kind of extending trade union membership of various kinds, you know, without people being organised in the workplace. I mean, because historically... You know, historically there are no you, there are no democratic reforms. You know, this comes back to earlier in the conversation. There are you don't get democratic reform without the threat of revolution. You don't get without the threat of economic disruption. And the, and the only institutions that are ever able to really leverage that are trade unions, whether they're trade whether they're the existing unions or whether they're they're new kinds of unions like the United Voices of the World. But I think that's really something that is. You know, people work is still a really crucial element of people's lives, and in, if people are not organised politically like with others in, at the workplace, but trade union membership has plummeted since the Blair years, and and other than their capacity still to influence the Labour leadership, do you do you genuinely think they hold power and that they can continue to hold power? It's not about holding power; it's about exercising power. Trade union membership has gone up and down over the decades. You know the low, the absolute low point for trade union membership in the past hundred years is the nineteen twenties. Actually, the nineteen thirties, like in the in the wake of the defeat of the Great General Strike, like it's still never fallen as low as that, and it recovered, you know, very well in in, in the subsequent sort of twenty years, and and unions really reached a sort of peak of power. So I think you can, I think you can never say never. It isn't only since the Blair years, and I just think, you know, I think it's, I think the temptation to think we can do without trade unions as part of the sort of ecology of progressive politics is one that sort of progressives have been 
has been tempted by repeatedly since the 60s uh, for various reasons, partly because of periodic declines and partly because of the way in which unions as big bureaucratic organisations can develop a great deal of institutional inertia, can seem to become very conservative. But I just think the whole historical record shows where you, you know, it's just, it's a, you know, it's a delusion. It's a delusion to think you can have a kind of successful progressive movement. And I, th- I think, for example, I really think the environmental movement right now in Britain ought to be focusing a lot more attention on shifting the position of of the leadership of the, the more conservative unions like the like the GMB. You know, that's what, you know, I sort of think... I think that's what, I mean, if if Extinction Rebellion claimed to have a theory of change based on economic disruption, well, look, if you want to do economic disruption, you you can go and sit in Trafalgar Square for a week, uh, or you can organise a mass strike of transport workers. Like, I I think I know which would create more economic disruption. So, and I think that, I think Extinction Rebellion would have been much better, yeah, it would have been strategically more effective if, if they had put their energy into effectively pressuring the union leaderships to take responsibility. But how do you effectively pressure people whose jobs depend on ignoring what you're saying and whose membership, you know, my time sitting in Trafalgar Square, I the people around me were not classic union people. They were middle class former professionals who most of whom had retired or were too young, you know, either end of the age scale. They were the under 30s and the over 50s and the people in the middle were busy at home with the kids earning money because this was pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. And and I think Joanna Macy's theory of change, you need the holding patterns and you need the systemic reform and you need the shifting consciousness. So let's assume that the shifting the trade unions is part of systems redesign. I The trade union people that I've met, and they are few, were not people, they didn't even acknowledge that climate change was an issue. They were completely class-focused. And no sense of a of a timescale of of you know total civilizational collapse within the next five years, which is what most of my you know climate scientist friends seem to think. How would we, as if I were the XR person you were speaking to, how would we do that? Well, I think you would have to. I'd certainly, it's not true that all trade unionists think that way. I mean, some do, some don't. It's a, you're talking about a movement of t- tens of millions of people. Yeah. And it's wide and it's a spectrum. I would say that the first thing is to the first thing, how you would do it, in my opinion, or if we're talking about that specific issue, of, you know, how could XR leverage the unions? I don't. I think the union the union leaderships, I think, are much more. Um, they are conscious that they have a specific the, the, of the issues and of the problems in their positions, but also they're conscious that you know structurally right now within British political culture. The the only job they're given is the job of representing the unions. I think I think if they we don't know what would happen if they were very publicly called upon, you know, if if people would say to them, look, instead of ignoring, I mean, you know, instead of ignoring them or assuming that they're just a bunch of you know, uh, uh, ill-educated proletarians who can't who can't be persuaded, if we were to say to them, look, publicly, repeatedly, you are these you are the only organisations that can actually deal this you are you are the only ones who could shift it this is your historic responsibility now you have historically been the, the leaders of progressive you know, you know change in this country you know since the since the 19th century this now is the time to step up and come into that role you know then i think it would be quite difficult for them actually to just say no i think we could make this happen jeremy actually that you know that's that's incredibly useful and that could well be an XR strategy for the new year. But I think the thing with you, when you're dealing with unions, like if, especially if you're somebody like an XR activist, you have to understand you're usually, if you're dealing with union officials, you're dealing with people who've done a really hard job, you know, for years and years and years, and they're immersed in a 200 year history of struggle. And most of them will have occasionally won something for their members. Hmm. If they're talking to someone, as you described, they're talking to somebody from the professional classes who's never really been in a fight, a political fight, and certainly never won anything, then, Hmm. you know, you can't expect them to take you seriously. You've got to be a bit deferential, to be honest. You've got to be, you've got to respect and acknowledge like where they're coming from. Like if you want them to to listen to you and sort of take you seriously, and you've got to absolutely not come at them with a sort of sense of middle class entitlement or sort of entitled, you know, the idea that you're entitled to be listened to. Mm. I mean, my experience of dealing with trade union people is that is the approach you have to take, and if you do, then they they will listen. You know, it's very it's possible to shift. I think you can't underestimate. 
the extent to which the trade unions in this country have been through a big culture shift over the past 20 years. You know, the U- the trade unions were, in terms of Labour Party politics, and we were talking about earlier, that the, the trade unions, the industrial unions, were the backbone of the, the right wing of the party for like nearly mm. a century. You know, I mean, the party was essentially divided between the union movement, which wasn't really interested in socialism, which was just interested in occasional reforms and and saw any kind of shift towards bigger systemic change as ultimately just compromising that. And the kind of ideological socialist wing, which was mostly drawn indeed from the professional classes, was mostly, um, you know, more highly educated people, etc. And that was the, that was the kind of tension within the, the Labour Party to some extent for nearly 100 years since really since sort of since they had the experience of realizing that gordon brown just had no intention of restoring social democracy like after after 10 years of blair the unions have been through a big culture shift you know unite backing you unite backing corbyn you know and the new i mean the the new unite leadership sharon graham is if anything you know in some in ways to the left of mccluskey in terms of her kind of political and social attitudes um the fact that the fact that organisations like Unison now are clearly are dominated by by women and are you know um, clearly understand that their job is defending kind of women's rights in a whole range of domains for that reason, they've been through a big big culture shift over the past twenty years really. I mean they've they've been doing things which you just couldn't like it was hard to imagine when I was you know twenty years ago in the early days of the Blair governments. I think you know the, you have to expect that they're going to be on you know quite a learning curve. But I absolutely wouldn't give up on them, I think. Okay. No, definitely. That's my project for the new year. But, okay, let's leave that aside for the moment. Let's assume that we've got the leadership of the various parties on side. What does our, and our new democracy is more representative and consultative. And somehow we've also managed to enhance people's sense-making so that it is not the case that whatever they last saw float past on Facebook and Twitter is what they believe. Because I, I really worry about consultative democracy where you can't get to some kind of agreed notion of fact. Right. You know, the whole COVID thing has shown us that it's really, really hard to get something agreed. And and. I think consultative democracy has to work, but we also have to get sense-making as part of it. Let's assume we've got both of those. Two questions. First question is, what timescale are you working under in your conceptions? Because I have spoken to very sensible, highly educated people who think we have possibly got five years. Uh, That 2026 would see our beginning of actual starvation in this country if we haven't really begun to shift both the political and the economic sphere to the point of understanding that we need to stop shoveling stuff to the top, but also really begun to address the climate and ecological emergency. What's your internal timescale? Okay, that's a very good question. I would say, firstly, my attitude to those kind of predictions and and the, my understanding of the kind of evidence and arguments that I've seen is I am sceptical about the predictions of civilizational breakdown in, within a very short time scale in the highly developed world. And I think the people making those predictions are themselves very naive about the capacity of the developed world to shift the problems onto the, the developing So we'll just basically take all the food from the global south yeah. in order to continue to feed, which is why we've presumably got new nuclear-powered submarines happening. Yeah, exactly. My feeling is that the people, and this is true, sort of close friends of mine who are, who are sort of torturing themselves with visions of civilization here in Britain or in France, like actually collapsing in the next 10 years, are in fact distracting themselves from what is the much more likely thing to happen in that time space, which is even more depressing, which is we will be sitting on tele- at home watching on television as tens of mil- hundreds of millions of people die in sub-Saharan Africa and our leaders tell us there's nothing that can be done about it. Okay. You know, that is where I think we're actually heading. Like It's horrible. And, but I think people are so much don't want to think about that being where we're heading that they're telling themselves, oh, it's all going to collapse here, which it just obviously isn't, frankly. Okay. We obviously have the capacity. You know, we obviously have the technological and resource capacity. Well, we do, but we have empty shelves at the moment. Well, yeah, we do. And they, they won't, I don't think they'll, I don't think we'll have empty, empty shelves for long. I just don't, I don't, I, and to me right now, just as a humanitarian, that is the future I want to avoid. The future I want yeah. to avoid, I'm worried about d- deflecting, is the one where I'm sitting on, I'm sitting at home on, on TV watching hundreds of millions of people die in Africa and in, and in okay. South Asia. Because 
millions are dying as we speak. So yeah, just but it'll be hundreds, okay. hundreds yes. of millions. And so, how do we, if we get to a system where we can stop that, what does that system look like? Well, I think you know, I'm very interested. I mean, it's already kind of left cliche in the English speaking world, but I think my idea is that the, the idea of a Green New Deal. Hmm represents i think the sort of horizon of both i mean to me it's a very important idea the idea of a green new deal because i think it is both the horizon of what is politically feasible within the next 10 to 15 years we're not going to abolish capitalism like global capitalism in the next 10 to 15 years that isn't going to happen uh, a green new deal like a, a, and something like it across europe and the united states is conceivable I think, in that, I would say in a 10 to 15 year time scale, to be honest. And tell me the essence of a Green New Deal as you see it. How would it work? Green New Deal would involve government managing significant sections of the economy in order to direct, you know, redirect production and, and distribution processes away from carbon emitting and carbon intensive ones towards uh, less carbon and carbon intensive ones. And at the same time, it would have to be engaging in sort of significant programs of redistribution and kind of reorganization of the economy to kind of reduce social inequality. So the term, so the term for people who aren't familiar, the term New Deal is obviously derived from the American experience of the, the New Deal in the 1930s, the kind of big reorganisation, really, of the relationship between workers, employers, and government, which I think people outside the United States often don't really understand, you know, sort of how what, how left wing a project the New mm. Deal was in the 30s and the extent to which it, I mean, it in order to undertake that set of reforms. The government had the federal government had to engage in explicitly anti-capitalist propaganda. For example, they had to explicitly say, "I mean, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen is a it was in an Adam Curtis documentary, and it's a it's a public information film made by the New Deal administration in the 30s, telling people how to kind of analyse newspaper reports for ideological bias in favour of you know the sort of capitalist <laughs> class. So that's the kind of level you have to get to." I think you have to do that. I think it does have to be, I think, you know, the kind of politics I'm talking about is anti-capitalist, not in the sense that it imagines capitalism as a total system that can be absolutely re replaced in a short time, but in that it recognises that capital accumulation specifically, specifically the practice of allowing corporations to amass kind of infinite profits, is just the obstacle to um, you know to any kind of social progress, and it has to be limited. You know, you can, I think you can, you, I think you can have a politics where you allow the private sector to do things, you allow people to pursue profits, but there's got to be a ceiling on the amount of profits that people are allowed to pursue because it's the it's the unlimited nature of the profits which corporations are not just allowed but really forced to pursue if they want to be sort of sustainable that I think is absolutely destructive to the social, cultural and, and environmental fabric. So it would involve, you know, it would it would look a lot like the Labour Party sort of manifesto in 2019, to be honest, is what, what the Green New Deal in practice would look like. I think it would also, you know, we've seen, I mean, you know, the Biden administration is, you know, trying to get through. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That I mean, we ha we don't have very long, whichever version of the future you look at that you really don't want, you know, Biden's got Joe Manchin, whose son owns three coal mines, as far as I can tell, who seems to me to be the voice of fossil fuel within the Democratic Party. Yeah, Trudeau's just held an election that he completely failed to really change the parliamentary electoral process. And and Johnson's got no intention whatsoever of changing changing anything that he's doing, except possibly shifting it all to the right. How are we going to make this happen, Jeremy? Well, I think the only thing I think you know, I think in this country we we, we can do the various things we've talked about. Um, there's organisations like Green Green New Deal Rising who are trying to make you know Green New, the Green New Deal kind of key object of public discourse, and then pressure you know MPs and candidates and organisations and indeed unions to kind of support it, and then you know a, a, attack them if they won't support it. So I think that kind of mass action is is going to be necessary. I think I think it's important to understand. You know, it's, it's always important to keep in mind there isn't just one. There isn't going to be like one thing that you do. Yeah, you can only you get progressive change through a whole kind of ecology of organisations and actions and sort of thinking and theory and institutions and counter institutions working together more or less towards a common objective. I think the Green New Deal is potentially useful because it does present a sort of 
demand or a sort of set of demands which uh, which lots of different people organizations can sign up to and can and can say look what we the reason we're blocking this road or the reason we're supporting this candidate or the reason we're taking this strike or even you know the reason i'm publishing this you know eighty thousand book of we're book of political philosophy is because i want this you know okay. this is this is what it's all sort of contributing towards i think it's important but there's never going there is never going to be just sort of one thing that you do okay brilliant we're out of time which is incredibly sad because i have at least a dozen more questions that i want to ask you <laughs> particularly about your forthcoming book but maybe maybe we'll invite you back when it's published and we can talk about that because it it kind of takes us off into the obstacles to the green new deal but as a closing question, if people listening, let's assume that we've long ago lost anyone who wasn't of political progressive instincts long before you came on board. So we have people listening who want a Green New Deal, progressive future, whatever their vision of what it is we're trying to push away. What can individuals do at this moment, wherever they are in the world, that would be the most constructive in your view? Okay, well, I can't answer with regard to wherever people are in the world. Okay. Uh, because that's going to—it's just going to vary in different places. I mean, in the states, you know, I would join—I would join the Democratic Safeties of America and the Sunrise Movement. And in England, at least, I would—I uh, would still tell people—I would still suggest joining the Labour Party and Momentum. I mean, Momentum is very, as an organisation, is very committed to the Green New Deal, and I think has a much clearer strategic sense of what it would take to get it than than any other organisation I can think of. Um, but, you know, if people, depending on the political conditions where you are, you know, you might find it more useful to join the Green Party or join the Liberal Democrats. I think you have to make Or the SNP if you're in Scotland. The SNP if you're in Scotland, yeah, possibly plaid in parts of Wales. Part of the logic of some of the things we've talked about here today is that there are, there are, def there are useful things to be done from within any of those organisations. I know it's incredibly boring for a lot of people to be told, well... Basically, you should join the Labour Party and you should support the left-wing faction of the Labour Party in, in, in its positions. Because I, I understand why that's boring and unsatisfactory. But I think one also one has to be wary of the temptation of avoiding the things that seem boring and, and frustrating in the short to medium term and just going for the instant gratification. We got an, a national health service eventually because because people sat in boring meetings or didn't or you know got frustrated by them and kept arguing a position for, for decades and decades. And that and that is often what it takes, sadly. Yeah, if we thought we had decades left. But it sounds like joining Green New Deal Rising might also be a useful thing in this country. I think so, yeah. I think GND, I think um, Green New Deal Rising is, is pitching itself specifically as a sort of youth organisation. So what you do if you're not, if you're sort of over 25, I, I, I'm not sure. Okay. I would really stress that the, moment, the current leadership and momentum, the people who won the momentum internal elections last year, are you know very intelligent group of activists you know very committed to sort of radical democratic processes internally and externally very sort of strategic in their conceptions and they're completely committed to the green new deal as a project and you can only be a member of momentum if you are a member of the labor party you can only be a member of momentum if you're eligible to be a member of the labor party i think oh okay we'll go and do the boring stuff people of the podcast this is your job find find your local way of making the most political difference get out there and do it and jeremy gilbert thank you so much for taking time out of your wednesday morning it's been fantastic well thanks for having me thanks very much and there we go that's it for another week enormous thanks to jeremy for his insight for his sharp political understanding for his knowledge of the history of the labor movement and for his concepts of what we can do now I think the idea of XR talking to the unions is huge. If you listen to this and you have a way to make that happen, I think that would be an astonishingly useful thing to do. And for the rest of us in the UK, perhaps rejoining the Labour Party, joining Momentum, trying to make things happen, and in other countries, join whatever is the most progressive political movement and find what you can do to support it. Because Jeremy is obviously right. The next five years are crucial and we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen except that it probably isn't predictable from here on in. So we will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, huge thanks to Caro C for, as ever, stellar sound production and for the music at the head and foot. And if you haven't listened to our podcast with Caro, 
It's number 92, Head Back and Find It. Huge thanks to Faith Tillery for all of the tech and all of the design and for the website. If you want to visit us there, we're at accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes there, the transcripts, links to anything that we think might be interesting from the podcast, and of course, all of the previous podcasts. You can also join the membership if you're interested in what Accidental Gods has to offer in terms of our ability to connect with the more than human world in order to ask the question, what do you want of me? And respond to the answer in real time. And finally, for now, we have the gatherings. The last gathering of the year is on Sunday, 31st October, Shawin, the time when the veils between the world are thinnest. And so, this gathering is called Dreaming Your Death Awake, because I genuinely believe that we only really begin to live when we learn to embrace death as our ultimate teacher. And also, that we only really learn how to die with grace and full awareness when we have embraced life as our ultimate teacher, and that these two go hand in hand. So if you're interested in that, it's on the events section of the website. And that's it for now. Huge thanks to you for listening. We will see you next week. Thank you and goodbye.